Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 6 once again. We'll be back in the series on the the Sermon on the Mount. I've titled it The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached. And I'm talking about the inspired sermon in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I'm not talking about the one I'm preaching today. We're coming to the subject of secret fasting been a few weeks, of course, about a month since I have uh, been behind this pulpit. A lot of uh, water has gone over the dam since we were in this series last. We took a break at a very natural point, though we had just finished up with dealing with the great prayer of Jesus, not the high priestly prayer, but the model prayer, the disciples' prayer, though it is often known as the Lord's Prayer. It's found in verses 9 through 13. What a tremendous passage that is. And we finished on a high note, the doxology with which Jesus closes the prayer. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So let it be. Let it be so. It's hard to top that, isn't it? Uh, It's hard to get on with something else. I pray that we will never think we have outgrown the need to pray the so-called Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer. May I remind you, it is inspired. It comprehends every need in our life. It's the divine template for prayer. Please don't feel like you're subscribing to some liturgical form to pray the Lord's Prayer every day. Do it sincerely, but do it. The day that you forget to pray, Lord, lead me not into temptation, is likely the time you'll fall for it. We need to pray it every day. We need to make it a the part and parcel of who we are in Christ. But then Jesus does move on to another act of piety in verse 16. Along with almsgiving, with praying, we now come to the matter of fasting. Verse 16, moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad or a dismal countenance, for they disfigure their faces. It doesn't mean that they mutilate themselves. It just means that they look, they make themselves intentionally unattractive, that they may appear unto men to fast. Jesus said, verily I say unto you, they have their reward. The praise of men is all they're going to get. Verse 17, but thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father, which is in secret. And thy Father, which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. A frequently recurring phrase, a promise, is kind of like a chorus. Now, what is Jesus talking about? Let's kind of collect our thoughts, get back on the same page here. Jesus is continuing to talk. He hasn't changed the subject. He's talking about personal righteousness. I listened to the messages preached while I was gone. I appreciate all of them, but Dr. Scheibner preached the first Sunday I was gone. He mentioned that righteousness is God's character. That's good. Righteousness is God's character. And this is a sermon. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. Every sermon has a text, and so if a text must be isolated for this sermon, the greatest sermon ever preached, it would be, as we've mentioned several times, chapter 5, verse 20, where Jesus said, except, I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. He's still talking about that righteousness, that authentic righteousness, that divine righteousness. And this righteousness, first and foremost, is an inward heart matter, but may I quickly add, it will show up on the outside. There will be an outward manifestation. And could I just stop there and give you a little bit of a warning that I think is a timely one for those of us in fundamental churches? Please beware of the current popular fad and tendency to discredit 
virtually all emphasis on outward standards of personal separation. We're so apologetic about it. It's almost as if no allowance is made for any sincerely held personal conviction or standard anymore. Uh, It's just dismissed as legalism and judgmentalism. May I just quickly say, no, it's not. It's the deprecating and censorious attitude with which some practice such outward standards that our Master, who Himself was, may I remind you, holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. I haven't heard that verse quoted in a long time. It's just that attitude, the censorious, deprecating attitude that God eschews. If we have true religion on the inside, it's going to show up on the outside. And when we see Jesus in all of His glory and His holiness, I don't think we're going to say, oh, I wish I hadn't had the standards of separation I did. It's real quiet. However, we must not practice such outward acts of piety to be seen of men. That's what Jesus is getting at here over and over again. When he says in verse 1, do not your alms, it's not just giving he's talking about. As we said when we, got, when we expounded that verse, it's talking about all outward acts of piety. Don't do it to be seen of men. And that's the particular emphasis that he gives about fasting here. Jesus doesn't say much about fasting. The Bible doesn't say much about fasting. So when Jesus does say something about it, it's pretty important. It's a neglected practice. Although in our day and in recent years, there's been a lot written about the subject, but much of what is written, probably most of what is written, is approaching it from the physical benefits rather than the spiritual reasons. We hear a lot about these days, uh, even people that aren't religious, they'll talk about intermittent fasting, partial fasting, alternate day fasting, calorie-restricted fasting, seasonal eating. There's even, I understand, what is called dirty fasting, where you fudge a little bit, you put some cream in your coffee, and, or you, you sip on some soup. A lot of mentioning of fasting, but usually it's pretty much physical or psychological reasons. Could I just ask you to dismiss all that from your mind this morning? Just to dispense with all the popular fads and nuances and curiosity matters connected with this word fasting. And and let's cut to the chase to glean the inspired wisdom from Jesus that He's giving here for the disciples of every age, the rest of the church age, not just His immediate disciples. Let's face it, we are creatures of sense and habit. Ask my wife, the older I get, the more I am so of that. I don't like to vary from my habit. And in nothing is man more closely connected with the world of sense than he is in his need or her need for food and the enjoyment of it. I shouldn't have mentioned it. Some of you are already thinking about what you're going to eat when you leave. But many have allowed king's stomach to rule in their lives. You've heard it said, and it's true. Some people eat to live, but others live to eat. Their God is their belly. Again, very little said about fasting in the Bible. But what is given there speaks volumes, including Jesus' words here. So let's expound them. Number one, These are simple points today. It's not going to take a seminary education to understand this. And I'm not against seminary education. Number one, Jesus expects His disciples to fast. He expects that. That's abundantly clear from the way He even introduces the subject here in verse 16. He says, moreover, that means in a similar way to what He talked about before, praying and and giving alms, charitable giving. Moreover, when ye fast. He didn't say if you fast. If you decide to fast. 
I just pointed out, Jesus takes for granted. He assumes that his disciples will fast. When? Once he ascended back to heaven. And he makes that clear from one of the other few places where he mentions fasting, and that is in Luke chapter 5. If you'll turn there quickly, keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 6. We will be spending most of our time there. But look at Luke chapter 5. And while you're turning there, I'll just mention the uh, background Pharisees and scribes come to Jesus and say, why do, your, why do your disciples not fast like the disciples of John the Baptist? John the Baptist was a very well-known figure. Pharisees didn't like him, but he was immensely popular. Luke chapter 5, verse 34, and he said, this is his answer, and he said unto them, can ye make the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? That's a rhetorical question, obviously not. Verse 35, but the days will come. When the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. Jesus expected us to fast. When he ascended back to heaven, he's still away from us. He's still gone away. That means fasting should still be practiced. There's no rules laid down for it, but Jesus expected us to do it. So nowhere is fasting commanded, though it's implied. Certainly fasting is not even mandated in the Old Testament. I've read some commentaries this week where they said, yes, there was one fast, and that was on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, as it's called today. And in uh, Leviticus chapter uh, 23 and 16 and Numbers chapter 29, I believe it is, we read those words in the King James Version, ye shall afflict your souls. And some commentators have made that to mean that's a synonym for fasting. It's not really a synonym for fasting. It speaks of humiliation. And of course, fasting is often associated with the humbling of ourselves. Even as David said in Psalm 35, verse 13, I humbled myself with fasting. So fasting is associated with humiliation. It is not the same thing as that. You can fast and not be humbled one iota. And Jesus certainly expected his children, that whether that's the Old Testament covenant people of Israel or the members of the New Testament church, he expects us to fast. And fasting has the tendency of humbling our flesh. Have you ever thought about this? It's pretty much an axiom, it's pretty much a rule that the welfare of our bodies and the welfare of our souls varies inversely. When we deny one, the other expands. When we starve one, the other feasts. But Jesus did not dictate how and when to fast. He left that to our sense of need and the personal leading of the Holy Spirit. Aren't you glad we can be led by the Holy Spirit? You're not going to find any time in the Bible where it says you should fast. Now's the time. But are we intent on pleasing our master? If we are, there will be times we will fast, unless it is just not advised physically for you to do that. Notice Jesus practiced fasting. I hope you caught it a few moments ago in that song I dearly love. I, I didn't get to choose all the hymns, but the one I chose was that Tell Me the Story of Jesus. Fasting alone in the desert, tell of the days that are past. And of course, that's a reference to what we read about. Don't have to turn there. I'll just kind of summarize it. Matthew chapter 4, after Jesus was baptized, immediately, the Bible says, the Spirit drives him into the wilderness and he's tempted or tested of Satan for 40 days. And after his fasting for 40 days... When he's at his weakest physically, Satan tempts him in the three areas where you and I are tempted, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And three times Jesus resists him, not in his own strength, not in his own power, not under his own authority, but using the same thing we have, the Word of God. It is written. And by his overcoming 
in the wilderness at the beginning of his earthly ministry, Jesus proved that he was our great representative. He is the second Adam. Think about this for a moment. It was with food that man was tempted and fell in the garden in paradise. It was with bread to be made of stones that Jesus, weakened through long abstinence from food, was tempted in the wilderness. It was in fasting that he triumphed. You think there might be some value in it for us? Jesus practiced it. His disciples, his apostles, his followers practiced it. We could spend a long time on this, but I won't just barely mention it. The New Testament is replete with examples of saints who practice fasting to great profit. We mention her often at Christmas time. There was Anna, the aged widow, who the Bible says departed not from the temple, but served the Lord and had done it for decades with fastings and prayers day and night. And if you'd walked up to Anna and said, do you feel like a second-class believer? Do you feel like you're condemned to a life of singleness? Like I hear some people talk. I think she would have readily corrected you and said, oh, no. (laughs) What could be more fulfilling than to see the Lord Christ, the infant Christ? Anna, Peter, He was really fasting on the rooftop there in Joppa when God gave him a vision that led to his going to the household of Cornelius in Caesarea and effectively opening the door of faith to the Gentiles as we read in Acts chapter 10 and 11. He was fasting when that vision with unclean food was let down before him and said, rise Peter, slay and eat. The church at Antioch fasted and prayed as they sent out Barnabas and Saul on their first missionary journey. There were a number of men mentioned there who were qualified, who were godly men, who had the approval of the church, but they wanted to get the mind of God. They didn't want to lay hands on any man suddenly. They didn't want to lay hands on the wrong men. And so they fasted and prayed, and God said, not in an audible voice, I don't think, but through spirit-led men, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul. Not Herod, or, or the, 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 the one that was brought up with Herod and Menaean. Not even John Mark, though they took him with them, thinking no harm done. He'll just be a servant. He'll just help us out. But as you've heard me say before, he didn't work out. He departed from the work. He hightailed it back to Jerusalem to Mama. Paul and Barnabas later had a falling out over that. But the point is, God didn't say, separate me, John Mark. Paul testified later to the Corinthians as he gave a catalog of his sufferings for Christ. He said, in fastings, oft, often. Evidently, fasting was a regular part of Paul's life. And even when he did eat, he didn't know what he was going to eat most of the time. He said, I, he told the Corinthians, he said, I know how to be a base. I know how to abound. I know how to eat coarse food. I know how to eat gourmet food. I can eat uh, rice and beans. I can eat filet mignon. Whatever God gives me. I know how to be full. I know how to be hungry. He was not a slave to his stomach. I know this is sensitive stuff. We don't hear much preaching about this in our fundamental churches. The noble train of apostolic successors, even since the age of the apostles that I've just been describing, the noble train of apostolic successors have continued this God-sanctioned, God-honored practice of fasting. And I could just mention many, the Wesley brothers, Charles and John and George Whitfield, Brainerd and, and Edwards, Luther and Calvin. Great missionaries like Carey and Judson. If you know anything about Christian biography, you know that the men that we still talk about were men primarily who be- and women who believed in fasting and practiced it. Down through the church age, 
God's people in many parts of the world over have felt that fasting is not only right, but it's of great value and importance. Surely that in itself should commend the practice to us. Beloved, the bridegroom is still absent. He hasn't come back yet. Therefore, fasting is still in effect. When the bridegroom is taken from them, then shall they fast. Jesus expects us to fast. Number two, we can learn from this brief mention of fasting in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus forbade ostentation in fasting. In fact, that's the main thing. That's what these verses are all about. Though Jesus said very little about fasting, when he did mention it, it's important. We ought to sit up and take notice. This prohibition that he gives in these four verses fits a pattern for the whole chapter, the beginning of the chapter anyway, chapter 6, all acts of piety, as we've mentioned, should be done as unto God, not to be seen of men. The sin of the Pharisees was not that they practiced or attached too much significance to fasting. The sin of the Pharisees was that they did it to impress others with their spirituality. God is a holy and jealous God, and He hates that. He doesn't want anybody being lifted up as a spiritual God, more or less, except Him. Someone has well observed that God made our eyes to see others, not ourselves. Oh, I know you can look into a mirror, see yourself, but even that's a little bit distorted image. You don't see what others see exactly. God made our eyes to see others, not ourselves. Do you remember where that word narcissist or narcissistic comes from? It's from Greek mythology, right? Who was narcissist? Well, he was a strikingly handsome, very beautiful young man who fell in love with his own reflection. And I'm just briefly summarizing, but his infatuation with himself was so strong that he actually pined away and killed himself. (laughs) Jesus Christ was the antithesis of narcissists. Because we read in Philippians chapter 3 that he humbled himself, he emptied himself, he made himself of no reputation serving others. And Paul says we are to let this mind be in us which was also in Christ. God wants us to be sincere, unaffected, simple, guileless. The word sincere there in the King James means without wax. Not made up, not stuck on ourselves. That's so desperately needed today. We should not call attention to our fasting. That's the gist of Jesus' words here in verse 16. Be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance. Don't look dismal. Be natural. Be normal. Get up. Take a bath like you usually do. I hope you usually do. Wash your face. Anoint your hair. There's nothing spiritual about having a bad hair day intentionally. Don't be drab. Don't be dowdy. Maybe the best thing to express this would be just say, forget people altogether. You're not really trying to have an impact. I hear that word all the time. We, We need to have an impact for Christ. No, no, no. That's not where the emphasis should be. We need to be impacted by Christ, then we'll have an impact for Christ. Forget yourself, forget others, and be concerned only about God, His honor, His glory. Not much fasting is practiced, but unfortunately, many people, if they ever do fast, you're going to know it. (laughs) They're going to tell everybody. Of course, they'll do it ever so innocently and innocuously, you know. Don't go to the trouble of preparing a meal today for me or or taking me out to a restaurant. I'm not going to eat. Or they get on the telephone. Oh, no, no, you're not calling me at a bad time. I'm just not eating anyway today. Or they may say something like, you know, it's amazing the things the Lord shows me when I just push back the plate for a meal or two. 
they got to get it in somehow. Jesus said, no, don't do that. Be guileless. Be unaffected. Be natural. By our words, by our dress, by our appearance before others, our actions. Don't call attention to your fasting. Secondly, we should not practice fasting mechanically. We need to avoid that. In other words, don't fast merely for the sake of doing it. You know, just checking one more thing off the list. Maybe others are doing it. Maybe it's a tradition. Maybe it's Friday. You know, many don't eat fish on Friday. Some don't eat at all. That's fine. But don't do it just for that reason. Paul addresses this attitude this attitude about doing it for things for their own sake and, and out of a sense of vain tradition in the book of Colossians in a very misunderstood passage and I'm afraid the wording of the King James doesn't really clear it up here so if you'll turn I want you to see this Colossians chapter 2 Colossians chapter 2 verses 20 through 23 I hope that I'll shed some light and won't confuse the issue more or make it more obscure He's counteracting some false teaching that the Colossian believers have been influenced by. It's probably part part and parcel with Gnosticism, the same thing that John has to refute in his first epistle. Verse 20, wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? That word ordinance there means tradition. Rules and traditions. And then he says, such as touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men. These are man-made things. But the verse I want you to see is verse 23. This is the verse that is not understood by most Christians. Or many, I'll put it that way. I don't claim that I understand it and nobody else does. Which things indeed, or have indeed a show of wisdom. That means an appearance of wisdom. In will worship, the word will worship means self-made religion, and humility, and that is false humility, which things have indeed an appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and false humility, and neglecting of the body. Ah, wouldn't fasting fall in that category? Neglecting of the body. And then notice what he says, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. If you have room, would you put out beside that in your Bible, that last phrase, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh, means that these practices are of no value, are you listening, in curbing our self-indulgence. Of no value in curbing our self-indulgence. So what is Paul saying to the Colossians? He is not advocating mere asceticism. You say, what do you mean by that, preacher? That's a big word, I know. But that means punishing the body, denying self in extreme ways like monks have been doing for centuries. And they think that this in itself means they're attaining to a higher spiritual plane. One of the famous monks that we still remember is Martin Luther. And before he really understood the the wonderful doctrine of justification by faith and and was gloriously saved himself, he would, as a monk, he would fast to the point of emaciation. He beat himself with a whip. He exposed himself to bone-chilling cold unnecessarily. He actually would go out and sweep the streets just to prove he was humble. Finally, he came to see that such acts of self-will were unavailing. They'd do absolutely nothing to weaken self-indulgence. So in any discussion about fasting, there is still this danger of being deceived by false humility. So let me just say it this way. You don't score any brownie points with God or atone for sin just because you fast. Your heart attitude needs to be right. May the Lord give us discernment. And there's one more thing I need to say. That is, we should not confuse the physical with the spiritual. 
and I can't overstress the importance of this. It's a well-established fact. If you've ever fasted for more than just a meal, <clears throat> it's well-established that after three, four, at the most five days of fasting from food, there's a, a period of unusual mental clarity that comes in. Once you get rid of the dizziness and the headaches and the distracting hunger pains, You'll have amazing mental clarity, but that in itself is not a spiritual benefit. A Buddhist monk can experience the same thing. An Orthodox Jew, a devout Jew observing Yom Kippur can experience the same thing. And neither of these are believers in Jesus Christ. They're just operating on the level of the natural and the physical. There can even be psychological benefits to fasting. The practice of fasting can be done merely as a part of discipline. Yes, we should be disciplined, but discipline is something that must be permanent and must be perpetual. There's nothing of spiritual value per per se in itself of discipline. If that were the case, then Olympic athletes would be the best believers in the world the best Christians in the world. You say, what are you getting at, preacher? I hope you're understanding me. I hope you're following me. For the informed child of God, fasting, are you listening, is not an end in itself. It is a means to an end. The discerning believer fasts for spiritual reasons, as an aid to faith and to prayer. And some of those spiritual reasons I'll mention as we close today. I hope they'll be a blessing and a challenge to you. And may I say again, as I've said a number of times in my ministry here over the last 23 years, there's a vital difference between character and godliness. Many unsaved people have unimpeachable character. Many unsaved people have unimpeachable morals. Still not saved. Many Pharisees had unimpeachable morals. This kind of falls in the same category as realizing there's a difference between a miracle and something that could be explained on a natural level as a result of natural processes or physical practices. There's always a danger in confusing that. In recent years, and I won't name any names, but some big names who have really champion this cause of character, godly character. They call it godly character. It's gone overseas. It's been used overseas. It's been accepted in China and other places. And we've come to find out that they didn't have much godly character themselves. There's a difference between character and godliness. Now, what are some reasons we should fast? I think that's not departing from the subject at hand here. If Jesus is trying to get us not to fast for the wrong reasons and to do it as unto God, well, we should fast unto God our Father. What are some spiritual purposes for fasting that are laid down in the Bible? What are the occasions documented when God's people fasted and God was pleased with it and God was entreated by it. I think this will help us. I hope we're open to this. Number one, God's people have often fasted to find out what offends a holy God. Just jot down this passage and I won't develop it. Maybe you can go home and read it on your own. In 2 Samuel 21, we read how that during the reign of David, the greatest king of Israel, Though overall it was a reign marked by God's blessing, yet for a three-year period there was a severe famine in the land of Israel, the combined the United Kingdom. So a famine is kind of an enforced fasting, isn't it? The crops didn't grow, the food was limited, and the great king with a heart for his people like David had, he was humbled and heartbroken and he earnestly sought the Lord as to why. Why this three-year famine, oh God? They, they lived really close to the land back then. It was an agrarian society. They didn't just go to the supermarket and get stuff out of the freezer and the fridge. 
And as they got serious before God, finding out what was offending God and causing this famine, because God controls the weather, God told them, God told David, isn't it amazing that when God is offended and we want to know why, He will tell us? Aren't you glad God is not some dumb idol who cannot speak like the gods of the heathen? When something is amiss that causes him to withhold his blessing, he's more than willing to show us. The problem with many evangelical churches in America is God is withholding his blessing, but we've gotten so used to it for decades it doesn't bother us anymore. In this case, God said to David, it's because your predecessor Saul broke his league, his covenant that Joshua had made with the Gibeonites. Remember those Canaanites that came with subterfuge to Joshua when they were taking over the land? Saul broke that league and killed some of them. And so when the descendants of these Gibeonites were consulted and asked what they would demand for atonement, it's interesting they said, we don't want any money. They didn't want reparations. Be careful to demand for reparations. We don't desire any Israelites to be killed. But deliver us up seven sons of this malicious guy, Saul, and we'll hang them. David complied. He spared Mephibosheth, the lame son of Jonathan, with whom he had that wonderful relationship, that sworn covenant. And the result was, and I know we think this, well, this is Old Testament. Yeah, it is. Maybe it doesn't happen exactly this way. But God was entreated for the land. God stopped the famine. But the point is, God was willing to show why he was withholding his blessing. And down through the history of the church, people that have fasted and prayed have found out why God was withholding his blessing. And often the tide was turned. There may be sin in the past that has not been expunged, repudiated, put away. I hope you don't think that I'm just scratching an itch this morning. I'm not. But I've been around long enough. I'll just come out and say it. I I celebrated my 68th birthday recently. I've been around a little while. I've seen what's happened in fundamentalism. And so often in our fundamental circles when a, a leader has been discredited and fallen morally, ethically, in a scandalous, immoral, fraudulent way. There have been cover-ups. Often the rationale is, let's protect the cause of Christ. We don't have to protect the cause of Christ. All we have to do is do right and judge sin. God is well able to take care of his own cause. When Uzzah reached up to steady the ark of God, he was trying to help God out. God didn't need that. Do you think God is able to take care of his name? Do you think God is able to take care of his cause if we just do what's right? Let's earnestly fast and pray to ascertain why God withholds His blessings, even in our day and place. We've had political leaders in the past that did that. I don't know what you think of them, whether you think they were born-again Christians or not, that's irrelevant to me, but Washington and Lincoln led their countrymen in seeking God's face during the dark days of war, imploring His forgiveness and favor. God was entreated. People in the Bible fasted to express genuine repentance over sin, and my time is slipping away. I'll just give you these these, um, references. I'll read the verse quickly. Isaiah 58, verse 6, God says, Is not this the fast that I have chosen to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that ye break every yoke? God was not pleased with Israel's ceremonial, ceremonial fasting when they were mistreating people. 
James 4, 8 through 10. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted. That's always associated with fasting, though it's not synonymous with it. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. And then he says this, humble yourselves in the sight of God and he shall lift you up. Let's make sure we have an accurate conception of our God. He is a forgiving God. He is more ready to forgive than we are ready to sue him for forgiveness. But he is a holy God. And David asked forgiveness not only for his actual transgressions, but he said this, cleanse thou me, O God, from secret faults. I don't hear that in praying these days. I seldom hear anyone say, oh God, so many things are withheld from me that are are offensive to you. Please show them to me so I can experience the fullness of your blessing. Even if they're secret to us, do they still offend God? Yeah. And there's nothing like fasting to help us to search our hearts and sift and weigh and wait before God until the impulses of the flesh are subdued and our shallow refuges and excuses are exposed and our turning from sin is no longer glib and shallow and superficial, but change. People fasted in Bible times to obtain divine wisdom and guidance. In the book of Ezra, there was, Ezra would call for fasts, especially when he sought spiritual guidance for captive Israel on the eve of their departure from Babylon. As we read in chapter 8, verse 21, he said, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might afflict ourselves before God. So you see the connection with fasting and afflicting ourselves. To seek of him a right way for us. I've underscored that in my Bible. To seek a right way for us and for our little ones and for all all our substance. Oh, how much heartache and regret would be avoided if we as parents would fast and pray for the same reason. Before we make major decisions affecting the family, before we move, before we change jobs, before we church hop, before we leave a ministry, before we marry someone. I, tell you, I did a little fasting before I decided to ask that lady out for a courtship thing. I, I, and I'm not setting myself up as an example. All I could see was, what if it didn't work out? Oh, the scandal that would go through Friendship Baptist Church. Pastor's courting, and he got jilted, and blah, blah, blah. It was something to fast over. It really was. So many things we could say. But I want to close with this. People in the Bible fasted and so should we to strengthen faith for revival and conversions. Faith for revival and conversions. You know that I'm a student of revival. I grew up with a great ministry that was dedicated to that. Dr. John R. Rice and the sword of the Lord. I've come to see revival in a little bit clearer way. I'm afraid much of our talk about revival is really revivalism. It's morphed in recent centuries from what it was in the time of Whitfield and Wesley and even Edwards and Moody. But I want you to turn to the passage that is quoted by Peter on the day of Pentecost when the inaugural revival took place. And that is in the book of Joel. Joel chapter 2. If you would turn there, we're almost done. Joel chapter 2, the actual verses that Peter quoted on the day of Pentecost are verses 28 and 29. It's funny, I don't hear much turning of the leaves. When I suggested a minor prophet, some of you gave up on me. Just in case you want to find it, it's between Hosea and Amos, okay? Joel, Joel chapter 2. I'll read verses 28 and 29 in a moment, but I want you first of all to see verse 12 because verses 28 and 29 are the end result of Jehovah's appeal beginning in verse 12. Therefore also now, he's talking to backslidden Israel, also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart and with, what's that next word class? Fasting. Yeah, he wanted him to fast. 
and with weeping and with mourning and rend or tear your heart and not your garments. The Oriental would tear his garments and put sackcloth and ashes on. Turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. He relents of the evil. And then what will God do when we do that? What did God do or will do for Israel? Verse 28, it must be a a spiritual application even in the present age, or Peter would not have quoted it on the day of Pentecost and said, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. Beloved, this is what began at Pentecost, but it's still a valid promise for the rest of the church age. And as I've studied and poured over the annals of revival history, if the history of the great awakenings and the outpourings of the Holy Spirit down through the church age thus far teach us anything, surely it is this, are you listening? That when the lamp of God is burning low in the house of God, as it did in the time of Samuel in the church, God calls out His people to get desperate with Him and fast and pray and not let Him go until He showers us with His blessings from above. In some cases, it's taken years before the blessing comes. But in that instance, we need to be like that importunate widow that Jesus told in Luke chapter 18, who represents the church that, that is at the, helplessly at the, at the mercy of its adversary, the, the devil, through the world, oppressing the church. We must cry unto him day and night, and though he bear long with us, yet he will avenge us. But you know what happens if we start praying? Prayer meeting is boring. We give up. We quit. It broke my heart to hear one of the churches that I was connected with during the vacation where a prayer meeting had been started weekly on Saturday and six, seven or more men would come and cry out to God for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. COVID changed that. They don't do that anymore. I ask you, will you join us in one or more of the weekly Zoom prayer meetings dedicated to this? Yes, we pray about other needs. We pray for the salvation of souls primarily. We pray for revival. Could I just say this? If revival is worth having, isn't it worth holding on to God for? Have we learned that from history? My time is gone. I cannot do justice to the remaining points of the outline. I'll just try to tantalize you to start fasting for conversions by citing Jesus' words in Mark 9, 29 to nine powerless disciples at the foot of the mountain of transfiguration. While he was up there with Peter, James, and John, and uh, Moses and Elijah appeared with him, and they spake, spake of his decease, his approaching death. What a Bible conference that was. What an ecstatic experience. But while they were up there on top of the mountain, there were nine powerless disciples at the foot of the mountain when a father came with his demon-possessed son and said, will you help me? And he expected them to help because he'd seen them cast out demons at other times at the authority of Jesus. He'd seen what their master could do. He had a reason to expect them to be able to do something, but they were powerless to do it. Jesus came down from the mountain And he said, why are you so faithless? He cast the demon out of the boy. And then he turned to his disciples and he said, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Oh, you say that's not in the best manuscripts. I'm not going to go there with you. I'll just say, Okay, then take Matthew 17, 21 that says the same thing. Faith needs a life of prayer. And prayer needs fasting. And there are some hard cases where you're going to have to starve yourself in order to starve the devil. I'll just say it. 
Maybe you have a wayward son or daughter. Maybe you have a son or daughter who's under a powerful addiction to sin, deeply deceived, and things seem to just get worse and not better. Could I make a suggestion? Don't do it because I'm saying to you. Invite your closest friends over. Invite those that you know are in touch with God. And instead of having a meal, just have a prolonged fast and cry out to God for your loved one. I haven't heard of that happening. In his classic book with Christ in the School of Prayer, my favorite book on prayer outside the Bible, the late Andrew Murray, I did, wouldn't agree with him on some things, but I'll tell you what, that man knew what the power of the Holy Spirit was. He knew what godliness was. He knew what revival was. He experienced it in South Africa. Here's a quote. This is not original with me, but boy, how it tears me up. He said this. You see it on the screen. It is only in a life of moderation and self-denial and self-control that there will be the heart or the strength to pray much. Fasting helps to express, to deepen, to confirm the resolution that we are ready to sacrifice anything, ourselves included, to attain what we seek for the kingdom of God. And will we believe God's Christ's promise when we do that? If we fast not to be seen of men, but unto our Father which is in heaven, our Father which seeth in secret shall, shall reward us openly. Will we set out to prove God in that? Will we set out to prove that God will reward us with spiritual power just as he did his own son if we're willing to give up all for Christ? and his kingdom. Let's pray. Oh God, we've grown so comfortable in our barren Christianity. We've accepted as a norm, subnormal Christianity. And we are forfeiting living demonstrations of the amazing power of God. Please disturb our carnal complacency. As you did with Daniel's Many years ago, will you do with us? Will you touch us, set us upon our knees in prevailing prayer? May food lose its taste and gastric cravings be traded for birth pangs for lost souls. Oh, don't let this sermon fall on deaf ears or soon be forgotten, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.